John chapter 2, 13 through 25. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the reading of God's holy word, forever faithful and true and given to each one of us in love. Let's go ahead and pray one more time. Jesus, we thank you for the gift of your preached word, for the very fact that it is the power of you, the gospel, unto salvation. And so we thank you, O Lord, for giving us this time to just hear it be read over us, to hear it be opened before us and preached. And we pray, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, as you promised to do, attend the preached word with power. For Lord, not one word comes from your mouth that will ever return void. So Jesus, we ask that you would use this in each one of our lives to impress timeless truths about your grace and about your love and about your mercy into each one of our hearts, O oh Lord, so that we might see you and know you and love you all the more. So we pray all this in the majestic name of King Jesus. Amen. Friends, a while ago, a dear, dear friend of mine, uh, Brett Eubank, who I was mentioning earlier, um, who got us to stand, by the way, again, same guy uh, from Rivermont, he had asked me to watch, at the time, his two-year-old dog named Annabelle. Sweet thing. She's oh, about Annabelle. almost three years old. Yeah, Annabelle. You've met her. Yeah. yeah. The golden retriever, right? Yes. Now, all of you except for William know my dog, Baxter, who's also almost three years old. Annabelle and Baxter are the same age. Um, and they are just the best of friends. They've hung out more than that one time. They've hung out since then even many, many, many times. In fact, Annabelle has actually stayed here more than a few times as well. And uh, it's just, it's always fun. She's a sweet dog. Yes, but is. as you can imagine, those two puppies, especially a year ago when this happened, these two dogs, I mean, they spent so much time, as I was watching Annabelle at the Eubanks house, they spent so much time just running around, chasing balls, chasing sticks, chasing each other, and then all over again, repeat, repeat, repeat. And I ended up watching Annabelle over at their house for four days. The first three days, it was perfect. It was almost too perfect, you know? <laughs> like, okay, what could go wrong here? You know, Murphy's Law. No. And on the fourth day, it just so happened that it was raining all day long. 
And I mean, each one of you guys are from Lynchburg, and welcome back to Lynchburg, right? But each one of you are from here, you know, like kind of like today and a couple days ago even, when it rains here in Lynchburg, like it rains, right? Like last night when I saw the rain coming down, I mean, it was like a monsoon almost, and it was barely raining, but it was still like flooding downtown over and over and over again. So, I mean, there's a reason why we call it Drenchburg here, right? Drenchburg. <laughs> Drenchburg. I've never heard that. There you go. <laughs> First that. time hearing that. Drenchburg. 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 But each time it rains here, you know it just rains. Cats and dogs, right? So, of course, those two dogs, both Annabelle and Baxter, stayed most of that day inside. You know, before they had been running outside, enjoying their freedom, and I thought, okay, I'm not messing things up. This is the last day before Brett and Denise get back and the kids like you can't mess this thing up, right? Well sure enough I figured, okay, well I gotta let them outside, you know, they gotta get out there a little bit at least. So I let them off the leash, let them outside, it's fenced in. Sure enough, within like two minutes, they are soaking wet. They come back, they bolt in through the door, they start running around the house, exactly, running around the house. And the worst part, I mean just again chasing each other, like just jumping all over everything. And they were just soaked head to tail and muddied up at that. Like, that was the worst part. They were muddied. And so immediately they were off inside the, the living room, running circles, tracking in mud, and jumping on, not Brett's, but Denise's clean white couches. I was going to say, I knew they had white couches. It was the worst. Uh, it was the worst. <laughs> Needless to say, I separated those two young puppies faster than you can even blink. And... The sad reality, though, was that the mud had already made its way into that house. Now, an hour later, and a good long bath later, both of those dogs were cleaned up. But then the real work began. I began to feverishly, feverishly <laughs> clean my friend's house to the very best of my ability, knowing that it would never be perfect again. <laughs> now, this evening, we are going to explore a far greater act of cleansing, though, than just simply dogs getting into a living room. And trying to clean it up feverishly. So here in John 2, as we've just read, we see the very zeal of our King Jesus over God's own house utterly consume him to the point of righteous anger, as we've even seen here. To the point where he physically had to remove those figurative dogs who had muddied up the worship of God's people. But this passage that we just read is far more than just a mere cleaning spree of Jesus at the temple. This passage is especially relevant to each one of us, no matter what our background might be, because it proves to us that Jesus is indeed zealous for each one of our purification. Not just our salvation, but our, our purification as the pride of Christ. After all, we ourselves are not at all unlike those two retrievers, Annabelle and Baxter, drawn into the muddied mess of this fallen world. You may feel, even right now, like you are muddy, spiritually speaking, even here in this place of worship. You might have come in this evening, even carrying the guilt and the shame of your sin from this past week, here into this place. And you might be thinking even right now, how can God truly love me knowing as little as I can know of my own sin when he knows all of it? But the gospel of Jesus tells us that he will not keep you in this sinful or muddied, if you will, state. The gospel tells us that he loves you far too much 
to let you go on wallowing outside in that mud of this world. And in his goodness, he washes us. He washes us thoroughly and lovingly brings us into his home. The very thing that we would seek to muddy up ourselves. But why? Why would Jesus do this? So that we might enjoy purified and grace-filled fellowship with him. And so if you catch nothing at all from this evening's sermon, please catch this one thing. This is our main point for the evening. That Jesus is zealous for your purification. And we'll see this in our text and how he zealously cleansed the temple and the church and even us as individuals. Those will be all three points for this evening as well. So let's go ahead and first look at this. First point that he zealously cleansed the temple comes to us in verses 13 through 17 of our passage. Again, our passage tells us this is the word of God. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers doing what? Sitting there. Now, we don't have time to fully unpack the fuller context of what was going on, especially the Passover meal that was about to be celebrated in the context of this Passover week. However, it is most important for us to know, contextually speaking, that the meal of the Passover itself was a gift that God had given the people of Israel way back in Exodus. And he had given it to them as an Old Testament sacrament that he established all the way back in Exodus 12 in order to represent Christ and all of Christ's benefits to us as his people well in advance as the true Passover lamb. But not only did this Old Testament sacrament that would one day in Christ's way become and be transformed into the Lord's Supper, not only did it represent Christ well in advance, even thousands of years ahead of time, it also represented Again, all this benefits, his goodness to us. And so here in John chapter 2, we see the Passover, the week of Passover even going on here, as the occasion, and the temple as the location of this week-long celebration. Now, believers, as we know as well, were drawn to Jerusalem, even way before this time, from all across the known land, in order to worship at God's holy place that God had designated. The Temple Mount, right there in the holy city of Jerusalem. This was a place where not even a hint of false worship should ever be allowed. But therein lies the problem. It was being allowed, wasn't it? False worship. And so in John 2, verse 13, we see Jesus go into the temple, the house of his father. But why did Jesus go into the temple? I mean, if he is the very object of worship himself, why did he have to go? He didn't need to sacrifice any animals or be a part of any of that, so to speak, on his own. Why did he do it? Well, I believe he did it for two key theological reasons. First, and I love this this doctrine, if you will, this teaching from the Bible, he did it to perfectly obey the law of God in our place. And then so attribute that perfect obedience to each one of us who believe in him. And second, Jesus did it in order to lead us in our worship. 
He is the true worship pastor, if you will, the true worship shepherd, the worship leader. Jesus is the chief one who leads us in our worship. And he proved himself, even in his actions, right here to be our worship leader. But when he entered the temple, what happened? We see that he became furious. <laughs> what did Christ see that made him furious? Well, he saw the slippery slope of sloppy worship. He saw the love of money replacing the love of God. He saw evil men leeching off of those who had traveled far and wide just to worship God through sacrifice. Since most of those people sadly had opted to buy their animals there at the temple, as opposed to actually obeying the law of God in the Old Testament, to buy their animals well ahead of time, and then come and be free of that during their time of worship. So they were so concerned about worldly things and trying to appease God by twisting the law to their own liking, their own worship style, if you will. And so what happened then? Since God's people had already distorted true biblical God-administered worship, they were taken advantage of. See, the enemy loves to not just distort our worship, but then use that distortion to lead us astray. You see it all throughout the Old Testament, especially with Nadab and Abihu, who offered strange fire unto God and tried worshiping God in their own way. And we saw it in our... A previous passage as well in John 2, 1 through 12. And so the money changers at the temple took advantage of God's people. See, these money changers didn't just set up shop outside the temple walls. No, they actually dared to take the place of God's holy worship inside the house of God. And to add insult to injury, they charged the people who came to worship around four times the going rate, according to the Mishnah, in that day. Talk about inflation, right? <laughs> We're paying, it seems like, twice as much for everything nowadays. They had to pay four times the amount for the animals at the, at the temple as they would have if they had just bought it way before they got to the temple. But see, all for the cause of capital C convenience, the worshipers fell prey to a den of robbers. Their worship had become adulterated. Now these robbers had stolen so many things. They, they stole, for instance, the attention of the people away from a true heart of brokenness and contriteness before God and replaced it with a concern over just how many animals they could buy in order to pay their dues to God. These robbers stole the significance of grace and replaced God-centered grace with a focus on trying to earn God's favor. These robbers also stole the joy of the people's salvation and exchanged that God-given joy for dry, ritualistic, man-made, even man-centered religion. And above all, these robbers sought, they tried, but they couldn't, but they sought to steal God's glory by replacing what had been set apart for holy use at a temple, with noisy shops and stalls and stands all lined with coins from around that known world. So Jesus rightly became furious. 
how dare this happen? How dare you desecrate the Lord himself? You can't do this. See, our God is a, a jealous God, and he will not share his glory with any other. Nor, and please catch this, will he let his people be abused and extorted. Especially his glory be stolen. And so I love it here. Jesus just threw down the gauntlet, so to speak. He threw down the gauntlet and he fashioned a whip of cords. He used every necessary force to drive out the workers of evil from the holy place of God. He poured out their coins. He overturned their tables and he spoke clearly to all who heard, do not make my father's house a house of trade. Brothers and sisters, we are not all that unlike the people here in John 2, are we? I mean, it'd be so easy for us to look at these people and say, wow, I'd never do that. I would never worship God wrongly. I love him. But we do. We do. We do it every day even. See, we may not think of breaking God's commandments in terms of robbery, for instance, but every time that we choose our own personal comforts or concerns or conveniences over worshiping God wholeheartedly, we are indeed robbing him. And we rob ourselves as well, (laughs) not just him. We rob ourselves of experiencing his joy and his goodness and his grace when we fashion worship after our own desires, not after what he has prescribed for us in his word. And so, friends, we need our worship to be purified. This brings us to point number two. See, not only did Jesus zealously cleanse the temple, that earthly temple right then and there in the context, he essentially promised to cleanse the church in verses 18 through 22. And he did this primarily, as we know, through his saving death and resurrection from the grave. Look with me, if you will, at what the Jews asked of him in verse 18. Right after he kicked out the money changers, they asked him this. What sign do you Sorry, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, won't you show us a symbol of your authority, Jesus? Why are you doing this? Now, I may or may not be speaking from personal experience, but if you've ever been pulled over by a cop, which Laura is laughing because I literally just was last week (laughs) on my way back from Birmingham. If you've ever been pulled over on a highway, you know that the cop's supposed to show you something before he just presumes that a kind of authority over you, right? He has to prove who he is. He shows you his badge, typically, or at least he shows you some kind of ID. Okay, I'm going to ask for your ID, but just know that I'm actually an officer. I'm not just a nobody, you know, pulling you over. That way you can trust him before you give him your information. <laughs> Again, speaking from personal experience here. <laughs> but this is essentially what the Jews were also asking Jesus. Okay, you just did this incredible thing. You just kicked out the people who are hurting God's people and leading people astray in their worship. But, but where's your badge? Who gave you the authority? Who gave you the right to do these things? I mean, sure, we also wanted to worship God, maybe even worship him rightly, but we couldn't have been the ones to drive out those money changers. We didn't have any power or authority to do that. So who gave you the right? You can imagine that they would have been saying these kinds of things. Even things like, Jesus, were you just feeling fed up or, or rebellious? Were you doing this out of your own vainglory, or were you actually doing this on behalf of Almighty God in heaven? 
Whose authority? And by what authority were you doing this? <clears throat> Friends, how did Jesus answer that? I love the way that he prophesied, or the way he answered them, because he prophesied over them. He said to them something powerful in such a way that he actually guised both his spiritual and his magisterial or kingly authority in that moment. He prophesied. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, of course, the men at this point who spoke to Jesus were provoked by these words, and so they essentially retorted, who do you think you are? It took us 46 years I can almost imagine an expletive in there at some point. But 46 years to rebuild this temple. I mean, they were angry at this point. Who are you? Sadly, friends, the Jews had missed the entire point of what Jesus was saying. Because we know from our text that he was speaking about the temple of his own body. For he himself is the glory of God in the flesh. The dwelling place of God with man. The Lamb of God who is himself the true and the better temple. And so he refused to allow this earthly picture of himself prefigured there in the temple in Jerusalem to become tainted with sin. As the writer of Hebrews tells us later on in the word, quoting Psalm 40 that we read earlier, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. But then I, meaning Jesus, said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me, again, Jesus, in the scroll of your book. That's Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. See, Jesus didn't need to assume any authority. It was already his. And so he was exercising his authority. Jagerson Machen my favorite hero of the faith. A lot of you guys know the name because we went through a book that I wrote on Machen as well <laughs> several months ago. The late Presbyterian pastor from 100 years ago who wrote Christianity and Liberalism. J. Gerson Machen, he put it so well by saying this. Jesus claimed the right to legislate, meaning right, and enact the kingdom of God. See, Jesus just, he didn't just serve the law or do what was necessary. He actually is the one who has all authority. He's the law maker, the law giver. He is the true prophet, priest, and king over us as people. And he would prove his divine authority even just a few short years later in the gospel through both his unjust death and bodily resurrection. Friends, as true prophet, Jesus dictates, speaks God's truth. As true priest, he cleanses God's people. He purifies them. And as true king, he rules over God's people with righteousness and fairness. But in his mercy, he has gone to the most extreme of all measures in order to purify us, his people, his church. See, just as Moses in the Old Testament was consumed with the worship of God upon returning from Mount Sinai, that he tore down the golden calf and instated God's law for the good of his people, Jesus, as a true and better prophet, does not want his church to become enslaved or captivated by even a hint of false worship. 
And so this is why we joyfully, even when we don't know the words, why we joyfully sing God's own thoughts and his songs back to him in his listening ears every Sunday night. It's why we here at Downtown Presbyterian are so careful to not conform the content of our worship to the passing fads and the whims of the culture around us. For the record, you're never going to see a, a light show going on behind me, for instance, or a fog machine in the background. <laughs> it's why, though, in the positive, that we treasure the gospel of Christ and him crucified. And we don't dare replace this message of the gospel with ideologies of self-help or politically driven speeches or entertaining light shows, as so many churches, especially here in America, have sadly done nowadays. But again, the positive, it is why, why we lift up each other in fervent prayer. Pray for each one of you guys before you came here today, by the way. It's why we do that. It's why we do that with earnestness as we seek the very face of God, as we cry out to him that his glory would be made known in our midst and in our town of downtown and beyond. And it's why we, as we've done tonight as well, openly confess our sins and our struggles with our brothers and sisters of respect and trust in each other, but especially in God. This is just a few aspects of key and good worship, if you will. And friends, I know that this real worship, this desire for real worship even, without a doubt, is yours. You desire, don't you? You desire to worship God. And I know that yours is therefore a holy hunger for the word of Christ. Yours is a spiritual vitality that is purposed to be spurred onward and upward until that final day of rest. Your worship then, each one of our worship, is in fact a pleasing aroma of Christ every Sunday that we gather here. And it's a fragrant offering of praise unto our living God, most high, who loves us. And this is all, this, this proper or good worship, is all a direct fulfillment of Christ's purpose for us. Way back in eternity past, and especially when he purchased us upon the cross, cleansing once for all time, as we just sang, once for all, cleansing us, purifying his church by his own blood for himself. And thinking about the cross one of my favorite professors at Westminster Seminary, Johnny Gibson, who's from Northern Ireland, a really cool guy, even cooler accent. <laughs> um, he once said this, that it is from Christ's riven side that he brought forth his bride. Maybe we let that sink in. Why would Christ be wounded for us? Why would he become a bloody mess even upon the cross? And yet despising the shame for us, as Hebrews tells us. Why would he go through that? Friends, it was all, all for the joy that was set before him, that he endured the cross, despising that shame of blood sprinkled all over him. 
See, his joy, his zeal, his burning passion is for you, the very bride of Christ, whom he has clothed in garments of his own pure, spotless righteousness. And so in John 2, we see that Jesus cleansed the temple, and in his death and resurrection, he cleansed the church. But friend, do you believe in your own heart of hearts that Jesus is able and in fact zealous to cleanse even you? And that he desires that over you even right now in this moment. That you would have a clean and pure conscience before him. See, we see this implicitly in verses 23 through 25. In his zeal for every single member of God's house, Jesus stands ready and eager even now, now, to cleanse you and to wash you, even you who already believe, with the waters of baptism and the word of truth. To remind you of your baptism for those who have already been baptized and to remind you of the truth of God's word. But please hear me correctly. This is not just an evangelistic call, you know, come to Jesus kind of moment, to be justified by faith before God. This invitation for each of us as believers, as I know we all are here in this room, is really a call to know and to enjoy the ongoing experience of sanctification, purification, if you will, as the gospel washes over you and refreshes you day by day by day by day. See, the glory of Jesus' cleansing work in us as believers, those who already have put our faith and our trust in him, is that he neither requires nor does he expect us to clean up our own selves in order to commune with him by prayer and the reading of his word. In fact, he knows that we are unable to clean ourselves up and make ourselves pure and holy before a pure and holy God. See, confession of our complete reliance, then, upon him is all that he requires of us. To confess our sins openly, without shame, without guilt, but rather to say, here I am. I believe, help my unbelief. For Jesus does not entrust himself to even our noblest desires to cleanse ourselves or to purify ourselves. As I know I often think, and I'm sure you often think as well, oh, if I only did that better, maybe God will love me if I do that. No, he he knows that we can't. That's why the word says that he doesn't entrust himself to man. He already knows what's in the heart of man. He knows that we can't clean ourselves up. Rather, solely by faith in his name, we are made clean and justified. Now, there is a powerful application, final word, really, here in this gospel truth for you and for me. Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6, we learn that our own bodies, for instance, are temples in which the Holy Spirit resides. The text there in 1 Corinthians 6 says this, You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. So, what should we do? Glorify God in your body. You might be thinking right now, yeah, but Rich, I don't, I know that, but I don't feel clean. I mean, even as a believer, I have entertained lustful or covetous thoughts. I have desecrated my body. I am too damaged, aren't I, for Jesus? I'm not good. I'm not good enough. I've fallen prey to foreign loves. How can Jesus ever actually want me? And so to you, dear Christian, struggling Christian, and I mean this with all sincerity, 
Jesus knew all that you have ever done and ever will do. And yet he proved that he wanted you, that he loved you by willfully dying for you upon the cross. See, his cleansing of the figure, or the, the physical temple rather pales in comparison to his ability and his willingness to cleanse you and remove every last one of your sins from you and the guilt that is attached to it as far as the east is from the west. So as we close, I want to remind us of the story about the dogs, of all things. <laughs> because who doesn't love a story about a dog, right? <laughs> Going back to that thought, you know, two dogs running around, and I just gave them a bath, and okay, phew, okay, they're clean, house is not. <laughs> and in the midst of my sheer panic over what they had just done, the mud that they had tracked into that clean house, and it's a beautiful house, by the way, <laughs> but in the midst of my panic, even before I gave them a bath and everything, <clears throat> my dog Baxter quickly picked up on my facial expression and my tone of voice that I was angry. I don't get angry that easily, but I was angry over what he had just done. My little puppy began to sulk, and my heart immediately became filled with compassion over him. Pity. (laughs) See, I couldn't help but just rush over to Baxter. I know a couple of you guys have seen this. It's kind of awkward. Went over to him and I gave him a giant hug, you know? Mud and all. I didn't care. I just wanted him to know that I still loved him. I mean, of course, he's just a dog, and I I get that. I mean, dogs aren't humans, right? You know? (laughs) You won't see us preaching that kind of gospel anywhere or anytime soon. But he's my dog. He's my dog. And my love for him, even just as a pet, compelled me to go over and comfort my little puppy in the midst of his dirtiness first and then go and clean him up and give him a proper bath. Friends, Jesus has a far greater love for you. We're no dogs in the household of faith. We are those who bear his image and his likeness, whom he loved and gave himself for. See, your dirtiness, all of our dirtiness, including myself, all of us, our dirtiness, as great as it may be, is of literally zero surprise to him. He knows it full well, better than we ever will. And yet he is still zealous, zealous for your purification as the gospel of grace makes inroads deeper and deeper into your own life. Friends, he is still zealous for your humble reliance upon him. He is still zealous for your joy in knowing the freedom, the liberty of a clean conscience before the Father. For he who is now raised from the dead will, at the last, raise you too who believe with a body finally and forever incorruptible at the last. No more brokenness. No more falling or hurting. Only liberty and freedom and gladness before the Father for all eternity. And so believe the word that Jesus speaks over you as he did for the woman who was bloodied on the inside. I will, I want to be clean. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you for this time that we have to, again, open your word and to hear from you. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would stir within our hearts a real seal for your house. We would be a people who love the church, who love your people, even those who have hurt us, because they belong to you. So Jesus, we confess that we often don't believe that you love us, especially that you're zealous for us. And so Jesus, in the midst of our unbelief, would you give us the grace to truly believe you, and to walk in the freedom and the liberty that you have given to us in the gospel of grace, and that you desire and want to and indeed have eternally secured for us a real and final cleansing from sin at the last. We long for that day, and we long to know even just a foretaste of that day now. And so we pray this in your holy name.